Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a Lee Enterprises podcast. I'm Amber Moten, the producer and editor of the show, filling in for Nat Cardona, who's taking some well-deserved time off. If you haven't listened to the last episode introducing our latest topic, the Osage Reign of Terror, go check it out before listening to this one. Today we're continuing our look at the series of suspicious deaths in the 1920s of members of the Osage tribe in Oklahoma. In the early 1900s, oil was found on the land that the Osages had purchased. The Tulsa World's Randy Crable explains more. The story is that uh, for, you know, a long, long time, uh, Indians had known that there were these oil seeps, you know, where oil would seep out of the ground and it'd be in springs and things like that. But it, through most of the 1800s, there wasn't really a lot of use for that oil. They they actually, they would use it for like rem, that remedies and things like that. It was considered medicinal. And so, of course, it wasn't until the uh, uh, invention of things like kerosene lamps and the internal combustion engine that, that oil became uh, uh, more valuable. And um, so the first... The first commercial oil well in Oklahoma, or what became Oklahoma, was was completed in 1897, uh, just outside the the Osage Reservation, just on the eastern edge of it. And a couple of years later, the first well then was drilled in Oklahoma. And about that time, and so this was around you know around 1900, and that was about the time we were starting to see motor vehicles and um and, and again kerosene uh was already pretty popular people tend to forget that the first use of oil uh as as we think of it today was actually kerosene and to use in, in uh, uh lamps and things like that so anyway uh that was in the early 1900s and around 1900 and by Oh, 1905 or 1906, they knew they they had, you know, quite a bit. Uh, right around the time of World War One is when it really picked up uh, from like uh, about, war, you know, about the mid 19 teens up through around 1929 was kind of the height of the oil boom in the Osage Nation. The Osages actually had relatively little control over their own affairs. Almost all of that was handled by uh, what now is the Bureau of Indian Affairs or or by the um, guardians that were appointed. You know, a lot of, a lot of them uh, had somebody who was appointed to handle their business affairs because they were not thought to be competent to handle their business affairs. So... A lot of that was out of their hands, and also I think a lot of them, especially the older ones, probably didn't even really completely understand what was going on. But 
when they first moved there, they probably mainly wanted to just be left alone. And, um, and it pretty became a pretty soon became apparent that they were not going to be able to do that. When did the Osage reign of terror really begin? There's not a really a definite date. So the killers of the flower moon, basically the book followed a, is a period from about 1921 to about 1929. But uh, there were probably people uh, dying as early as 1912, 1910, something like that. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, similar type things were going on in the adjoining Muscogee Creek Nation. The Cherokees had some of that going on. It was a different situation because with the Osages, they all, when they started, they all had equal shares. So any Osage was worth, you know, some, some sort of money from their head right. Whereas with the Muscogees and the Cherokees, their mineral rights were tied to their individual allotment. So if you were, if you were a member of one of those tribes that had a particularly valuable allotment, you could be targeted. Uh, And, and so, in some cases, you, you know, 1906, 1907, 1908, there were people who were disappearing. Some of them turned up alive somewhere else. Some of them were never found. As far as the Osage, yeah, um, it, it really began to intensify, uh, it seems like, uh, uh, 19... Uh, probably around 1920, and it, it coincides with when the 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 uh, the height of the boom. So it, you know the, the the boom was really taken off in the late teens, early twenties. By the late twenties, I'm sorry, the late teens, early twenties, it was uh, pretty well uh, subsiding by the late twenties. A very quick reminder about the Osage's mineral rights. The original allotments of the mineral rights were divided into over 2,200 shares, which were called head rights. As people died, had babies, got married, etc., those rights began moving around, and you had some people with multiple rights and some with fractional rights. Making things even more complicated was the ability to pass head rights to non-tribal areas. I spoke with Randy's colleague Tim Stanley about the series of crimes that earned the name the Osage Reign of Terror. I am uh, Tim Stanley, uh, a reporter here for the Tulsa World. I've been with the world for a little over 20 years. The Reign of Terror, I think that was a a term that was probably coined maybe by by journalists. I'm I'm not real sure of the origins of it, but I know it did appear in in some of the newspapers uh, of the time. But um, it was a reference to uh, a series of, of murders. Um, that took place um, among uh, Osage Nation tribal members in the early 1900s. Specifically, I think they date them um, or officially to like 1921 to 26, about a five-year span. Of course, as we, uh, as David Grant in his book uh, has pointed out, and as we also did in our series, the, the exact years that this took place and and the true number of victims probably we're probably talking about a much larger span than just that five years 
but uh, the murders were, uh, you know, committed by, I mean, there was a conspiracy involved, um, but at the same time, uh, there were a lot of people just individually taking the opportunity they saw to to cheat and exploit um, and white people taking the opportunity to cheat and exploit uh, their Osage neighbors there in, in Osage County. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I think specifically the, the reign of terror and the word terror there refers to, uh, you know, just um, this um, atmosphere of, of dread and terror that, that really um, materialized in Osage County among the tribal citizens there after I think the first three or four uh, killings, I mean, when it kind of became obvious that, that these were connected and that, um, that potentially anyone uh, who was a member of the tribe could be next. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, I mean, as reported in, in the newspapers at the time and as David Grant and others have chronicled, it was a, a time of heightened fear um you had many this was i mean the electric light bulb and that at that time was still a relatively new innovation but for a lot of the uh the people osage tribal members living outside of the town paul huska or um or some of the other towns they lived in the countryside um and grand describes this in his book but they began to put up electric lights on their properties at night in such a way that they they just really uh, shone for miles around um, and they were doing that really out of fear um, out of what might be out there in the darkness um, of course as as we would come to find out um, it was less the danger that was out there in the darkness for many of these folks uh, it was less what was out there as opposed to what was was inside and close to them many of the murders as it turns out were committed uh, very sadly, by by people they trusted, people they knew, family members, close family members, spouses, people who who would then have access uh, to their oil wealth, um, which was really the motive behind it all. How many victims were there officially? Uh, officially, this is this is where it's interesting. The number that uh, has been tossed around, you know, for years, um, even before the Grand Book was was twenty four. And where that, which number, is a lot in and of itself. That's a lot. That's definitely, I mean, it should be eye opening, um, just as it is uh, 24 people. Now, where that comes from, uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, the uh, federal investigators at the time who, who investigated this case and ultimately, you know, brought charges, um, that, that number was one that they put out there. Um, and I think uh, their exact words were they believed that there were at least 24 victims. So they were even, you know, in their language, um, I think, leaving it open for more. Um, but the 24, you know, that's that's the number that uh, has sort of been, you know, considered official. Um, but, uh, you know, that the problem with it, as you know, as we as would as we found out and in our own reporting and as has been reported, you know, by Gran, um, you know, the 24, you know, is, uh, probably well shy, well short of what the true number was. I, you know, the problem with the 24, um, is that, and, and it's given rise to so much speculation 
is in saying that there were at least 24, you know, federal investigators didn't give give or provide a list of those 24. So all we've been able to do, you know, in retrospect, and that includes, you know, the tribal members who've looked into this is sort of speculate at, at the 24 themselves. Now, some of them are obvious. Three homicides that ended up, you know, charges being brought in um, that were investigated as homicides. But then you had many others that were just the circumstances were probably suspicious, but they were never investigated as homicides. It's just uh, it's really, in other words, it's really hard to come up with a definitive list of the 24 that, you know, federal investigators, you know, thought were, were victims here. You know, you'll find lists out there where p- people speculate on who they might have been. And between those lists, some names are certainly they have in common. But, um, yeah, they didn't uh, they didn't do us any favors when they put that number out there all those years ago and then didn't bother to elaborate on on who that might be. All of them outside of the ones in, in their specific cases. I, I think the best thing you can say about it is it's more of a starting point. I mean, it's it's a number that was put out there by the people who investigated it, so it's worth considering. But the problem is we don't even know who the full 24 were, and um, and and we now have reason to believe that there were many more in addition to that that uh, was never made the list. So, um, so that's that's where the number comes from, and just a little background on it. I guess unofficially, members of the Osage tribe, do they have another? estimate for victims and when we had a chance to sit down with some of the tribal officials and and we talked to uh, chief standing bear chief jeffrey standing bear um the current principal chief he said you know once there was a time um many many years ago several decades um when when they were sort of informally talking about this just amongst themselves and um again very informal he said, but um, the number they came up with was would have put it at well over a hundred um, killed for their oil wealth during that time span, and and that ru- but it would have been roughly five uh, percent of the tribe's then population. Oh wow! Which is pretty eye opening. And he said, you know, even then there were other some of the older members of the tribe who who maybe had. Um, you know, who, who were around even back at, at the time who thought that estimate was too low. So, you know, so the tribe unofficially based on that very informal internal investigation, you know, suggested or proposed well over a hundred. I mean, a hundred compared to 24. So we're talking a death toll, you know, really far exceeding that mm-hmm. original estimate. Um, but as you know, Chief Standing Bear pointed out to us, um, there's just nothing. There's no way to do anything with that. There's no way to to you know make it any more official than just mm-hmm. that. It's it's pure speculation because um, that's all you can do. Really, a hundred years removed um, from the events when the uh, when the when the deaths were not uh, necessarily investigated as homicides. Uh, and when when all you've got are family stories or family suspicions, uh, I mean that's all you can do is speculate. I mean it's nothing wrong with that. Speculation can be a good thing, and in this th- case, I think it is a good thing. But as he would say, 
And remember, it is speculation. It's just, it's something we mm-hmm. can never know, unfortunately. The way people were killed, it wasn't the same. It wasn't everyone was shot or whatever. No, that would have, that sure would have made it a lot easier. Right. Uh, from a, from an investigative standpoint. But no, uh, you can probably put them in two categories. And that's, you know, the ones that were obviously violent. And there were many shootings. There was a, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be vividly, I think, portrayed in the movie. There was a uh, house that was dynamited and, and blown up, with three people killed in it. Um, so those, I mean, obviously, you know, those um, didn't take uh, Sherlock Holmes to to know that you were dealing with homicides. But there were a lot of others, you know, that were just very quiet, Um um, just where the uh, you know the homicide, if if in fact that's what it was, just just wasn't obvious and and would have taken um, some serious investigation, and and in most cases was not done. And in the article that you wrote um, about how the total number of victims, you know, we may or we will never know the total number of victims compared to what's officially on record. You talked about a few specific or wrote about a few specific stories. Um, Is there anything about those that you'd want to share on the podcast? You know, it's difficult, you know, a hundred years removed to find people who can talk about it or or family members that still remember. I, you know, we, uh, I guess, you know, centrally, um, or, or especially important to our story was, um, you know, an interview we did with um, former Osage Principal Chief uh, Jim Gray, um, who is the great grandson of one of the uh, one of the pivotal figures, you know, in the whole story, and that was uh, Henry Roan, who was one of the victims. Um, and who was a victim who ultimately it was his his slaying that uh, that um, Hale and the others held accountable were um, charged for uh, Henry, you know, ended up being a, a pivotal figure in the story. He, he was uh, he was murdered, um, found you know, shot in the head. He was uh, one of the early murders. He wasn't. He wasn't the first, but it was his that uh, I think, as we mentioned, really, uh, really sort of triggered the terror, as we called it. Can um, at that, that point that people could really connect the dots and see that um, that somebody was out to get these tribal members. But yeah, I think the interview with with um, former Chief Gray about his his great grandfather was was critical to our story. Um, because number one, I mean, Henry is, is so important to the overall story, uh, but also just the insights that, um, that, uh, Jim Gray could give a contextual understanding of, of the, all the forces at work in Henry's life and in, in helping or, uh, making him who he was at that point in his life. But, um, yeah, I mean, he never, uh, you know, uh, Jim Gray never had a chance to know his great grandfather. Um, he just knew him through um, things that his mother would tell him uh, about Henry, who was her grandfather. You know, we uh, one of one of the interviews we did was with uh, the former um, executive director of the uh, Osage uh, History Museum in Pawhuska, which is a sort of a repository there of, of a lot of tribal history. 
um, and artifacts. So a, a wonderful place if you ever get a chance to go. Um, but the former executive director of that is a lady still lives in that era area named uh, Catherine Redcorn. Um, she talked to us. Uh, she is, she was interviewed um, uh, by David Grand for his book uh, "Killers of the Flower Moon," and um, in it, as as in our interview, you know, she talks about uh, an exhibit that they did, and um, there that really sort of, I think, uh, from David Grand's own recollections, really sort of uh, launched him on this mission to write this book. And that was an exhibit of, uh, of uh, photos from tribal members from uh, the early 1900s, many of whom would have been uh, uh, caught up in this in the reign of terror. Um, when they first put this uh, exhibit together, um, I think Grand came in later, and he saw it, and and was moved by it. Um, but uh, the reason, uh, I mean, we want to talk to Catherine about that um, because that was pivotal. But she has a, a family story that I think um, illustrates what a what a lot of a large number of families have been left um, to live with as far as questions about a relative's demise and not being able to know for sure whether it um, was connected. She, she told us about, you know, her uh, grandfather, um, a man named uh, Raymond Redcorn um, who died. And, and this is important. Um, he died in 1931 of suspicious circumstances. And the reason that's important um, is that, if he died in 1931 and his his death is connected to the reign of terror well that's you know the official span was 1921 to 1926 that these killings took place so if if his death was connected it shows that they span not only further than that but into the next decade and you know we want to be careful with this because as she said you know, we really don't know anything for sure, but there, there, there's always been suspicions surrounding her grandfather's death, um, and that he, apparently, based on what things that he said at the time that were that have been passed on, um, he believed that his his wife at the time in in 1931, I believe, would have been his second wife, um, was actually poisoning him. Uh, he, uh, from what Catherine and others told us, um, you know, if, if you went over to his house during that time period, he would advise you, uh, well, don't eat anything while you're here. Don't drink anything. Um, you know, he clearly believed something was going on. And then, and then what do you know? One day he dies. Uh, now he had had a pro protracted illness. Um, he had been growing weaker. What, the only thing we can say, you know, and it's really a circumstantial, you know, uh, case, but, you know, the uh, the evidence does seem to fit the patterns of, of other, what we might, other poisonings. And, and one thing that makes this so difficult is is some of these killings were, were it was very obvious that they were homicides because uh, they were violent. I mean, like with Henry, who was shot in the head. I mean, there was no denying it. But with many, many others, 
um, that that people in retrospect now we believe were suspicious. I mean, the cause was just not so obvious. Uh, this was an era when when poisonings were very common, uh, a lot of murders by poison. Um, and depending on you know what the substance was and, and how it was administered, it could be very hard to detect. Um, now they could, you know, if they did an autopsy and and they did a what we would now call a toxic toxicological um, do a, a tox on it, uh, they they could determine that poison was present. They did have that uh, they did have that uh, capacity then. However. Um, you know, if if there was no obvious reason um, to do it, and 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 you also were dealing with potentially corrupt authorities who who were not inclined to look too closely, um, a lot of these uh, a lot of these deaths were never investigated. We have to take a quick break, so don't go too far. The Reign of Terror did just that, created an atmosphere of fear in the Osage community. Fear of violence and fear that authorities weren't going to help even if someone were to speak up. Randy explained how this fear impacted the investigations. The, the earliest, uh, well, it, it was called the Reign of Terror because people just lived in terror. They were afraid to, to talk. And when the FBI came in there in uh, 1923, to try and uh, sort things out uh, in their in their uh, letters and reports and so forth from that time, like you know, they talk about how people are just terrified to talk, and and uh, they would not talk to outsiders at all. And in fact, is 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 been talked about a lot with with this book and movie. They they wound up putting some some men undercover to try and insinuate themselves into the community so they could get information and um because people were afraid if they if they told what they knew or what they thought and they were honest about it they they'd be killed and uh and this and this was true of a lot of a lot of people and uh you know i think uh molly uh, burkhardt at one time uh she told her her priest that she was afraid uh, just you know, people, people who were not part of the, uh, and even some of them who were part of the these these organizations that were that were doing these things, were afraid to talk about it. And sometimes they were afraid to talk about it because they were involved too, you know. But but they, often they were afraid to talk about it because of of repercussions against themselves. And, you know, so again, you'd have people just go missing. You have bodies, you know, uh, that, uh, that would turn up, you know, they'd find them out in the, in the oil field or, or, uh, in a ravine or, or you'd have one, one thing that happened a lot was, was unexplained deaths. People would, you know, quote, get sick and die. And that happened with Molly Burkhart's mother, and and at least and one of her one of, at least one of her sisters, where they, um, uh, they called it like mysterious wasting disease and things mm. like that. They didn't really have a name for it, and um, the FBI suspected the local doctor was in on it, 
that he that he knew what was going on and he was you know making it worse mm-hmm. or at least not reporting it um maybe taking some, of some these, kickbacks from the perpetrators it, it, yes exactly uh some people uh some of these folks suffered from diabetes and they weren't being now treating diabetes i think in those days was probably a lot more difficult anyway but they were not they were not helping it mm-hmm. anyway Mm-hmm. And um, it, 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 you know, it was just um, it, it was it was a time when you just had to you know be careful about every little thing you did and said. And this is where we wrap things up today. Thanks for listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss our next episode. We'll pick up with the investigation and who was held responsible or not for the murders during the Osage Reign of Terror. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.